There was a time when I prided myself on my anti-racism because I believed it was completely seamless. I was raised in the deep south on a dirt road and I was wired by God for defiance against evil, but broken by my own sense of that defiance against evil often became defiance against anything. And my world was racist, so I hated it. Racism was the status quo, so I wanted out. I loathed everything about Southern pride, its icons and images, its vernacular, its history and culture. I desecrated the Confederate flag, and I made family dinners tense and awkward. I was proud of what I believed was my ironclad anti-racism. And these 28 years in Southeast Georgia shaped me. Racism and white supremacy were often on my mind. I wrote songs about them. I wrote a novel about them. I preached and talked about them often. And then eventually I moved from the Deep South to the Pacific Northwest. The population of Savannah, Georgia, where I grew up, is 54% African American and 38% white. The racial demographic of both Vancouver, Washington and our neighbors in Portland, Oregon, is 80% white and 2% black. A friend told me when I arrived that the racism here is less like elephants in the streets and more like termites in the walls. And I have found this to be true. It was still here, not so hard to find, but it was less gregarious, a subtle slinking thing. And it was always, for me, elsewhere, beyond me. The sin of racists, I believed, was the sin of bank robbers and murderers, foreign and unknowable. And in my presumed sinlessness, the words of my master fell on a deaf heart. If you are angry with a brother or sister, you are like a murderer. If you objectify women with your eyes, you are an adulterer in your heart. Sin is complex and devastating. I've watched in outrage and shock the murder of black and brown men and women and children as headlines and streaming content, viral videos that deplete the soul and overwhelm the viewer. And I shielded myself with the prayer of the Pharisee, God, I thank you that I am not like other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But then, one evening, the Spirit of God impressed upon my mind a forgotten memory. I was a young teenager and already hardened in my antagonism and outrage toward Southern pride and hatefulness. I was riding my bicycle late one evening down the dirt roads of our tiny town. It was a hot Georgia night, the purple gloam soundtracked by a chorus of cicadas. And in the half light, a young black man approached on his bike from the other direction, heading toward me in the lonely darkness. And I remembered that I was afraid. His hood was pulled up and one hand was hidden in his jacket. He slowed a bit as he approached and eyeing me, he drew his hand slowly from inside his shirt and waved. Though I believed myself uninfected from the sin of my culture and upbringing, I had, I had allowed years of words and images to form my subconscious reaction to the sight of another person I did not know. But as God brought this memory to my attention so many years later, I realized that the greater sin was not in those moments of fear as this young man approached, fear that I knew was informed not by the dusk or the lonely road, but by the color of his skin. The greater sin took place as he passed by in the relief that washed over me. 
For rather than acknowledging my own sin, I thought to myself, good for him. Good for him for not exemplifying the hateful fear that I projected onto him without reason. And in doing so, I walled myself off from the reality of my own sin, a sin I sincerely despised, but whose tendrils had somehow needled into me without my knowing. I have no way of knowing exactly how this sermon will find you. The things to which I must speak are beyond the scope of my personal experience and expertise. I am a teacher of the Bible and theology, and with other men and women, I lead a small church. I do not want to have this conversation digitally, but my conscience will not permit me to wait. This is something that I hope you will award your attention without multitasking, not in headphones with, while washing dishes or mowing grass, but in the quiet with a Bible in front of you. My responsibility, I believe, is to come before you, my church, brothers and sisters, and to bring Bible and theology to bear on a world that is reeling, not for the first time and likely not the last, from racial discord. Today I want to speak in broad strokes about the Bible and the church of Jesus in the storm of American racism. Next week we will speak more in specifics and with more practicality. All cannot be said in one sermon. Today is the beginning of an ongoing conversation. I am asking for your patience and your grace as we begin that conversation. I learned very young that few things probe the cavity of one's idolatry like conversations about racism. So, before we open the scriptures, let me pray over our church. Father, we are your children, students of your Son, Jesus, our Lord. By your Spirit, dismantle any idols in our hearts with the fire of the spirit of jesus burn away any political allegiances or cultural biases so that only allegiance to king jesus remains have mercy on us for we are sinners amen please open your bibles to genesis chapter one I want to show you some things in your own Bibles that you're holding with your own hands, so we will be moving through this library. Please stay with me. Genesis 1 is, for many, a familiar story. Out of a watery chaos, the one and only creator God fashions life and beauty and order and goodness. And the apex in this symphony of creation is in Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Out of the preeminent love relationship, God creates humanity in his image. This is the Bible's foundation for human dignity and justice on page one. Every human equally bears the image of God himself, and we are tasked as God's image bearers with ruling over his world in accordance with God's definition of good and evil. And yet, in chapter three of the Bible story, we learn that humanity has redefined good and evil to suit our own desires and interests, outside voices that do not belong to or align with God. We do this to our own advantage and at the expense of other people. It's what Darwinianism calls survival of the fittest, what many call self-preservation, and what the Bible calls injustice. But the Bible has unique ways of describing injustice, and we'll get there in a moment. 
But as the Bible story unfolds, the sin of injustice that began in a garden spawns and proliferates until it moves from the sin of individuals to the sin of families to the sin of communities to the sin of entire civilizations. So God begins a rescue mission, not to sweep souls up into heaven, but to restore justice to a world where the powerful prey upon the weak. Turn a few chapters to the right in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. In the story, God selects a man and his family to become the vehicle through which he will begin the process of restoring justice. Look down at Genesis 18, verse 18. God says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Abraham is chosen by God to direct himself and his family and his descendants toward righteousness and justice. In Hebrew, the word righteousness is sadaqah, which is not an ambiguous way of describing moral behavior, but a specific way of describing a way of life that recognizes the image of God in others and treats them accordingly. It refers to right relationships. Justice in Hebrew is mishpat. Hebrew scholar Tim Mackey describes the word this way. Most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step farther, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. It means taking steps to advocate for the, for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. God's new family through Abraham would know the horrors of injustice firsthand, becoming immigrant slaves in Egypt, so that when Yahweh sets them free, he again impresses upon them his passion for justice. Turn in your Bibles one book to the right to Exodus chapter 22. Abraham's descendants had become a people, Israel, and Yahweh warned them against any tribalism that could wall them off from the needs of others. Look down at Exodus 22, verse 21. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. And then turn a page or so to chapter 23, where we read again in verse 9, Exodus 23, 9. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. But it's not enough, says Yahweh, to simply not oppress. Sadaqah and Mishpat are about active ways of life. Turn another book to the right to Leviticus chapter 19. In God's law for Israel, we see specific concern for justice beyond the tribe. Look at Leviticus 19, verse 10. You shall not pick your vineyard bare or gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. Notice it doesn't matter if it's rightly yours, and it doesn't matter if you're not the one who contributed to their poverty demonstrate active concern for the other beyond the tribe. Skip down to verse 33. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not wrong him. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as one of your citizens. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Do not just avoid injustice. Actively pursue the well-being of the other. 
the one beyond the tribe, the one whose experience does not mirror your own. But in the story, in the story Israel, like Adam, like Eve, fails in her God-given appointment to accept God's definition of good and evil, and her prophets and sages cry out for justice. Jeremiah writes, This is what Yahweh says, Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do not wrong or do violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. In the wisdom literature we read, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. In the Psalms we read, God upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. Yahweh sets prisoners free. Yahweh gives sight to the blind. Yahweh lifts up those who were bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. Yahweh watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. So the scriptures deliberately contrast the idea of those who do justice with those who are wicked. Injustice, in other words, is wickedness. The Hebrew word is rasha. It refers to those who do not treat other humans according to their dignity as those made in the image of God. From the first page of the Bible throughout all of its history and stories, justice for the overlooked and the oppressed is not a peripheral aspect of God's person or of his people, but fundamental to the identity of both. Thus, Jesus of Nazareth summarizes the dense and complicated library of Hebrew scriptures with this statement, do to other people what you would have them do to you. Sadaqah and mishpat, righteousness and justice. And it is by this standard that disciples of Jesus will be identified and judged. Turn to the right in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. In John's biography of Jesus, Jesus says that disciples of his will be recognized by their love for others. But in Matthew 25, Jesus also teaches that a failure to do justice will be the means by which he recognizes false disciples. Let's read Matthew 25, beginning with verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. 
I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And Jesus' unique concern for the outsider, the oppressed, the overlooked, is evidenced in the prioritization of his ministry, which moves him away from the places of power and prestige and to the margins of society. Jesus elevates the dignity of women in a time and place where they were seen as little more than property. Jesus moves beyond ethnic and nationalistic barriers to love and serve Samaritans and Gentiles. When the world had pushed lepers outside of the community, deemed them less than, unclean, Jesus reached out and touched them. God chose a backwoods, poor teenage girl to become the mother of the Messiah. And in that beloved Christmas story, it's not the priest nor the powerful chosen to first behold the king, but shepherds. Shepherds, marginalized, not allowed to participate in many religious practices in Israel, outsiders, worthless. And yet when the angels appear to proclaim the news of the arrival of King Jesus, among the most sacred and noteworthy announcements in the history of the universe, it goes first to shepherds, not to the elite, not to the religiously educated, not to the powerful. The gospel goes forth often first and foremost through the lives of those whose lives are said by the world to matter not. Make no mistake, this is who God is. He says, those the world dehumanizes, I will elevate them to the special place of honor. The world has has said that their lives matter for nothing, so I will let history say otherwise. And today, we read these stories and we tell them to our children that those cast from the places of privilege were honored and chosen first by God. Yes, we read these stories, but all of us bring heavy lenses to our reading of the scriptures. We see its story through our story, our culture and upbringing, the stories that we believe are political biases. All of us do this. Myself, as a white man in my church, predominantly white, there's something important that we need to understand about these lenses. Among the most dangerous of lenses through which we filter the scriptures is to read ourselves as the oppressed. We were once dead and made alive in King Jesus. This is true. We were once in bondage to sin, and we were set free by our Redeemer and Lord. This is also true. But the Bible is a story about more than the saving of souls. It is the story of God's unique heart for justice and his unique heart for the oppressed. And in the Bible story, God demonstrates as much concern for those who are oppressed socially and politically as he does for those who are oppressed spiritually. This is how the Bible is written from the vantage of the oppressed. Realizing this, white author Brian Zond wrote, 
One of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that in it, we find the narrative told from the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the conquered, the occupied, the defeated. This is what makes it prophetic. We know that history is written by the winners. This is true. Except in the case of the Bible, it is the opposite. This is the subversive genius of the Hebrew prophets. They wrote from a bottom-up perspective. Imagine a history of colonial America written by Cherokee Indians and African slaves. That would be a different way of telling the story. And that's what the Bible does. It's the story of Egypt told by the slaves. The story of Babylon told by the exiles. The story of Rome told by the occupied. What about those brief moments when Israel appeared to be on top? In those cases, the prophets told Israel's story from the perspective of the peasant poor as a critique of the royal elite, like when Amos denounced the wives of the Israelite arist <laughs> aristocracy. God, that word. I'll just backpedal for a second. Leave them going. I'll know it's at the beginning. Like when Amos denounced the wives of the Israelite arist... <laughs> I keep wanting to say like aristocrats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aristocracy. Like when Amos denounced the wives of the Israelite <laughs> aristocracy, Israelite aristocracy, Israelite aristocracy. One mouthful. Like when Amos denounced the wives of the Israelite aristocracy as the fat cows of Basham. Every story is told from a vantage point. It has a bias. The bias of the Bible is from the vantage point of the underclass. But what happens if we lose sight of the prophetically subversive vantage point of the Bible? What happens if those on top read themselves into the story, not as imperial Egyptians, Babylonians, and Romans, but as the Israelites? That's when you get the bizarre phenomenon of the elite and the entitled using the Bible to endorse their dominance as God's will. This is Roman Christianity after Constantine. This is Christendom on crusade. This is colonists seeing America as their promised land and the native inhabitants as Canaanites to be conquered. This is the whole history of European colonialism. This is Jim Crow. This is the American prosperity gospel. This is the domestication of scripture. This is making the Bible dance a jig for our own amusement. This is how the Spirit of God saw fit to breathe out the scriptures that we call the Bible. No, the experience of white Americans, by and large, is very different from the experience out of which the Bible was written. Yes, the story of the Bible is the history of salvation, but it cannot be reduced to this only. The Bible has villains, and one of the great villains of the Bible is a beast called empire, the place of military power and economic wealth, the nation-state who believes itself the rightful ruler of other nations with their manifest destiny to shape history according to their agenda, regardless of the nobility or rightness of it. This is Egypt. This is Babylon. This is Rome. This is the United States of America. And so most of us among the brothers and sisters of my predominantly white church, we are not little Israel, but mighty Egypt. Ours is not the story of the poor outsider, but of the wealthy, the powerful, and the elite. And though our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, it is in the Bible Satan who animates the evil of the empire. He is the dragon of Babylon, and Babylon is home. 
But we do not want to be the Bible's villains, so we defend ourselves. I am not the empire. I have not participated personally in the atrocities of the empire's history. Modern Westerners breathe the air of individualism, steeped from birth in a worldview that values and highlights personal freedom and autonomy and expression above any kind of group identity. It makes consumers of us. Our desires and needs and stories exist in a vacuum independent of our families and communities and generations. When we talk about racial injustice, it's easy for those who have not suffered racialized oppression and violence to rush to individualistic defense mode. But I haven't done anything. But as Jesus himself taught, the one who does not gather scatters. Disciples of Jesus do more than refrain from injustice. They actively practice justice. In the story of the Bible, there is no paradigm for individualism. Entire families, nations, even generations of people understand their identity as woven into the group, the tribe, the people. So the sin of the people burdens the heart of the individual, though they themselves might be innocent of that sin. God's relationship with individuals is affected by his relationship with their people, their tribe, their family, their nation. In God's own self-disclosure statement, the words are as haunting as they are beautiful. Yahweh came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining that love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And while Bible scholars agree that this text does not reveal a vindictive and unjust God who punishes the innocent for the guilt that preceded them, it does teach this. Sin does not blossom in a vacuum. Evil has lasting consequences, and history has shown that it is foolish for those who wash their hands of the past to say they will be free of the mistakes of their fathers. Jesus himself pronounces judgment on the violent heritage of the Pharisees and on their repeating of the generational cycle, bringing the sin of the past generations to bear on the present. The Bible is not the story of individuals, but of peoples. I told myself at a young age that I would not only reject but that I would combat the vile racism handed down to me by generations of Southern white supremacists. And on a warm evening in Georgia, I found my heart poisoned by their hatred, by the words and images of Babylon, so that a young man who meant only to greet me became in my mind and for a moment a threat. I was taught by the empire and I believed her. Ours is the empire of slave trade the buying and selling of black men, women, and children as property, an economy propped up on the back of slaves. Ours is the empire of segregation, the Ku Klux Klan. In our empire, photographs of lynchings were sold as postcards. Ours is the empire that sent dogs and opened fire hoses on nonviolent protesters, the empire that assassinated the prophetic witness of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and you may sincerely hate each of those things, but such is our empire, the generations before us. And God stands against empires and oppression 
and we stand with God. It is written, may he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. It is written, O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of earth will no longer cause terror. On and on it is written, from cover to cover, the heart of God for the oppressed. And so, my predominantly white church in our predominantly white city, we have a problem Though the empire is home for us all, the systems the empire has used to conquer this land and to make itself wealthy were established by white people to work for white people. That doesn't mean that your whiteness is inherently bad or that your life hasn't been hard. It means the collective experience of an entire group of people is and has been fundamentally different from another's. And God has commanded us to recognize this and to do something about it even at the expense of ourselves, even at the cost of the empire's comforts. When we deny this, or when we willfully ignore this, or when we ask, how is that my fault? What can I do? We stand with the empire. Most of us will not likely leave the empire physically, nor will we divorce every aspect of our lives from its complex functionality, but we can learn to see it for what it is and to ask, as disciples of Jesus, what must be done in order that we stand with the oppressed? Our time, our city, our place, touts itself as a bastion of progressive values, but the termites are in the walls. With millions of others around the world, I watched the horrific on-camera murder of George Floyd. George's murderer, a white police officer, kept his victim pinned beneath his crushing knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds. The officer, Derek Chauvin, did not remove his knee, even as George and several surrounding bystanders pleaded for his life nor after George lost consciousness, nor for a full minute after paramedics paramedics arrived at the scene. He pinned him there with utter disregard for the image of God. And though the murder of George Floyd gave rise to international outrage, it is hardly an anomaly. In 2014, Eric Garner, like George Floyd, pleaded, I can't breathe while being ruthlessly strangled to death by a police officer in broad daylight, before witnesses, and on camera, and the world watched. In 2015, a white officer shot and killed Walter Scott, unarmed and black, on camera, and the world watched. In 2016, Philando Castile, unarmed and black, was shot to death by an officer while a four-year-old girl watched from the back seat, and then we watched as well. And these are only a few of the incidents captured on video to say nothing of countless others reported but not filmed. Both logic and history dictate that we are likely eyeing the horrifying tip of a sinister iceberg. So the world is reacting. And what do these incidents elsewhere in our country have to do with a small church in Vancouver, Washington? I've spent the last couple of weeks, like many, thinking reading, reeling, at something of a loss. And I've been asking myself a lot of questions about our church. I've been asking questions about my own heart, 
my ear to the wall of my soul, listening for termites. My church, the church I love dearly, with humility and affection, though I have to speak to things beyond my experience, as your pastor, I want to ask you to listen. When the white public beholds videos like the one of George Floyd, many react defensively. But how can the church of Jesus ever do such a thing? I've been hearing the same thing since 1993 when at age 10 I watched as Rodney King was beaten within an inch of his life by Los Angeles police officers. I listened in my own living room to the first murmurings of defensiveness around me and I have heard the same white defensiveness permeate Christian conversation for decades. But what was the black person doing? But not all police officers are bad. But is it actually racially motivated? Please listen to me, whether you're the one who needs to hear this or you simply need to know this for your own sanity. The world around you may rush to defensiveness, to excuses when beholding violent injustice, but this must be banished from the church of Jesus. Please listen. The role of God's people is to stand in solidarity with the historically disenfranchised, to plead the case of the oppressed, to do righteousness and justice for those victimized by evil systems of institutionalized violence. When a society refuses to uphold the dignity of an entire group of people made in God's image, the church is to rise up against that evil. You, as a disciple of Jesus, have not been commanded to defend your political allegiances or to plead the case of the empire and the victimizers. You have been forbidden from doing these things. To do them is to stand with Satan. And if you look back over centuries of slavery and lynching and hate speech and you can generate no empathy for another group of people, then by God, you better ask the Spirit of God to give it to you. If the termites in your soul make you squirm and ask, but did he deserve it? Then look long and hard at the footage of one of God's image bearers calling for his mother as the breath of life is snuffed from his body by an indifferent killer and be brave enough to ask God to break your heart. White Christians are reacting to blanket accusations of racism, but what they fail to understand is that racism is not always tiki torch marches and swastikas, but more often an unwillingness to abandon our defensiveness and to enter into the pain of someone else. White pastor Greg Boyd said last week that White superiority forms our plausibility structures, what we think is credible and what isn't. Our confidence in this system is in that it works well for us, so we assume it works well all the time. That shapes the way we look at the world and what we think is reasonable and not reasonable. So when white folks hear, I can't breathe, instead of believing that and entering into that and asking what we can do to resolve that, we're socialized into having an automatic defense of the system. It's spoken from a white perspective that is quarantined from the unjust suffering that their system causes. White American Christianity, he went on to say, has set the table for this. 
And though we may think ourselves innocent as individuals, our story is the story of a people in a place. And with this, we must reckon. If you are a disciple of Jesus, your political preferences are meaningless before your allegiance to Jesus. I do not care about your political affiliation or your preferred news outlets or your fear of one alleged agenda or another. You are either for Jesus or you are against him and the world will know by how you confront injustice and oppression. It doesn't matter if you've done nothing wrong. If your loved ones are police officers or if you're one yourself, you are to stand against injustice even and especially at great personal expense. So we stand before the God who is on the side of the oppressed and we lay our defensiveness before him and say, destroy it, Lord. To stand with the oppressed is not a requirement to abandon logic and nuance, but to draw the weight of our full attention to the hurt of those devalued by the world. The world is hurting right now, furious, confused. And disciples of Jesus are to mourn with those who mourn. We are to be first to cry out on behalf of ourselves, Lord, have mercy. We are never to be among those who scoff. Why should I ask for mercy? I've done nothing wrong. In her book, Mother to Son, Letters to a Black Boy on Identity and Hope, Jasmine Holmes writes this, My fear for you, my son, is not so much that you will be lynched like Emmett Till. Make no mistake, I will train you, as I was trained, to respond to authority in a way that will make you appear as non-threatening and compliant as humanly possible. And I will hope and pray that this compliance will serve as some kind of barrier against the brutality that your young black form may incur. I will watch every news story of a black man gunned down by police with a twinge of fear, wanting so badly to trust that those charged with protecting our communities would not harm you without just cause, but fearing every scenario where they might. I have not entertained these fears for my son. The experience of Jasmine Holmes is alien to me. And when I read her words, I want God to break my heart in two. I don't want the lying snake whispering in my ear, but you didn't do anything wrong. I want to forget myself. And so if somewhere in your spirit lurks the defensive urge, we have to confront this. The all lives matter mentality is fundamentally contrary to the way of Jesus. The mighty creator God of the universe looks out on the world and he selects the powerless for special places of honor. I imagine that the all lives matter activists would be incensed by the choices of this scandalous God who highlights the lives of overlooked shepherds, who upholds the cause of the oppressed, who leaves the 99 sheep to chase after the one that wanders. How can the church of Jesus become so selfish so cold and unfeeling as to demand recognition when it veers from us to the oppressed. We seem belligerent, storming into a funeral, shouting over the eulogy, but what about me? Like callous monsters who would grab grieving widows by their shoulders and shout in their tear-stained faces, you're not the only one with problems. 
I've watched in the last few days as pastors and faith leaders pleading for empathy have been told by a hostile public to leave race out of it. When race makes our black brothers and sisters historically and statistically ongoing targets of violent injustice. In essence, staring into centuries of violence and hatred, generations of suffering and outrage and saying, your pain doesn't matter. Your pain inconveniences me. We are disciples of King Jesus. We are to be steeped in and informed by the scriptures that tell the story of a God who shows unique concern for the hurting, the oppressed, those steamrolled by the systems of the empire. I've been so discouraged to see alleged Christians who rush to decry riots and looting rather than allowing themselves to be transported by empathy. Right or wrong, if it was my son or my brother or my friend who was treated with such vile contempt for human life, murdered in public, then I think I, I might feel like screaming. I feel like I, I, I might feel like breaking something or worse. If it was my son or my brother or my friend and I watched a man who seems by all accounts to believe himself above any kind of accountability with complete and utter disregard for human life, crush the life from my loved one as he pleaded for his own life and called for his mother, I would want to smash something too. Without, without generations of oppression, without having been silenced and steamrolled and gunned down, unarmed in the streets without slavery or segregation, right or wrong, I would feel like smashing something. And if we love George Floyd, we will enter into that empathy. In his essay, Black Rage in an Anti-Black World is a Spiritual Virtue, Dante Stewart writes this, Rage shakes us out of our illusion, illusion that the world as it is, is what God wants. Rage forces us to deal with the gross system of inequality, exploitation, and disrespect. Rage is the public cry for black dignity. It becomes the public expression of a theological truth that black lives matter to God. Rage is the work of love that stands against an unloving world. Rage is the good news that though your society forgets you and works against you, there is someone who loves you and believes you are worth fighting for. If you are more concerned about the responses of black rage than you are about a system that justifies and rewards black death, you don't love black people. You just love when they stay in their place, and that's not love, that's hate. When there is pain in the world, may the church of Jesus become tender and defenseless, not shouting at God, but what about me? Not rationalizing to yourself, I didn't do anything, but crying out in lament, let me be less, Lord. Let me be less. Lift up those who are less than. May I decrease so that others may increase, as is the heart of Father God. Let any competing allegiances be exposed, God, and destroy them. Let any self-preservation in me be burned away that self-sacrificial love might grow in its place. Lord, take me from the lenses of my individualism and let me see myself as a part of a story with all that story's beauty and all of that story's ugliness and teach me, 
Father, to understand that past and to mourn its sin and to walk in the ways of repentance, not just as an individual, but as a people. These things are inarguable. Racism and white supremacy are from Satan. Anyone who upholds or defends them in ways explicit or implicit, consciously or subconsciously, carries out the will of the devil. These things are inarguable. God promises to bring down systems of injustice and to elevate the oppressed to positions of honor. The first shall be last. The last shall be first, as Jesus himself said. You and I are to recognize the words of our master and obey them. Charlie Dates, a black pastor in Chicago, said this in his May 31st sermon. When I watched another video of another unarmed black man put to death by the sanctioned violence of Officer Derek Chauvin, I considered the fact that such a cry as, I can't breathe, is not merely anthropological, but it is theological. The problem with white supremacy, killing black women and black men in America, is an error of theology. It is a failure of the white mind and the white power structure to remember from where breath really comes. And so, my church, to the church that I love at a time when our country seems tearing at the seams during, during a year that has already felt for many like madness, I want to bring you into an ongoing conversation. I want us to consider a few things, all of us. Conversation around race in America has been so volatile that many of us have not found a way into it. We pull the lid from the septic tank that is social media. A black plume of trauma and outrage and political infighting blinds us to any reason. But I have been asking myself painful questions of late. Me, in my prideful anti-racism with my books written and songs written, decrying white superiority, my disdain for the racism of my upbringing, I asked God to show me the depths of my heart and he has brought me before painful questions. Why, Josh, pastor of Van City Church, why is your church almost entirely white? Yes, your city is predominantly white. Yes, your church is very small. But is there something else? I'm not sure. Have I failed my church as a pastor in this way? Days ago, reeling, I wrote a liturgy to share with our church, a lamentation of racism. And in it, I prayed things like, God of justice expose the evil of the powerful and corrupt. And I longed to pray these things together as a community. And as I felt that longing, a stinging disquiet entered my mind. Would my community pray this with me? Or would some grow defensive? Lord, show me my failure. In the assumed seamlessness of my anti-racism, I have hated insincere diversity as a prop, a fabrication to assuage the felt guilt of white pastors and to affect a veneer of kingdom family by forcing a charade. But son, the father asked me, have you gone too far? Is your perception of authenticity greater than your desire to see the full kingdom family in reconciling relationship with one another? In my disdain for white virtue signaling and what I have perceived to be wholly inauthentic social media posturing, the father asked, have you gone too deaf? 
I think I know my church, though I do not know each of you in, in exhaustive, intimate detail, nor can I. I feel I have a sense of my church. And I suspect that many of you feel a bit like I do. You've taken for granted that you are on the right side of this issue, and maybe you are also very upset. Maybe you've been reading or thinking or protesting. Maybe you've felt angry and confused. And in the loud fog of understandably angry voices, people are reaching for answers. What do we do about this? And this is, I'm learning, a question with a few immediate answers, but far more that will come from a long road of hard work. In the immediate sense, Van City, as many of you know, gives 10% of every dollar given to our church for justice causes in our city and around the world. We have set aside the next set of justice funds for nonprofits that specifically combat racism and the oppression of black people in communities. Our justice team is pursuing a long-term partnership with organizations like these. But then what? We can do that right now. Then what? We can talk about these things, and we are, and we will. There will be another week of prayer and lament on our daily podcast, and next Sunday we're going to continue this conversation about what can be done to take action. I would humbly ask for your patience as we walk through this together. But what about right now? What about you and me? Though the story of God is a story of peoples, Incredible change in entire cultures and societies are often set in motion by the prophetic witness of individuals. So my humble request to the church that I love is to go before God today, tomorrow, again this week, and to plead, reveal any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What would you have me do, God? I am helpless before you, God. Have mercy. What would you have me do? Let us begin, but not end, there.